1: According to the nonprofit organization, The Sentencing Project, Tennessee has over 470,000 citizens who are denied the right to vote. That's the second highest disenfranchment population in the country, outpacing much bigger states like Texas, And it comes as no surprise that black and brown people make up a large swath of those who are denied the right to vote. If a Tennessean who was incarcerated for a felony wants to obtain their voting rights, the process is long and complicated, and the state has recently made it even more difficult. Let's meet some of the people who are leading the movement to change things. Blair Bowie is an attorney with the Campaign Legal Center and director of Restore Your Vote Project. Blair, thank you for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Really great to have you with us, and joining her is Raheem Buford. He's the founder of Unheard Voices Project and a former guest of the show. Raheem, good to see you again. Welcome back. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, you know, Blair, can you tell us what was the process for voting restoration before the state Supreme Court's decision in July?
0: Sure. So, sort of starting with some broad national context. Almost half of states automatically restore voting rights to people with felony convictions once they've been released from prison. And then the majority of remaining states set some level of additional standards, like you also have to finish probation or parole. There's a handful of states that also require people to pay off their court debts, fines, fees, and restitution. Um, But Tennessee is or was, one of only three states that additionally required people to obtain a certificate that proves that they met those criteria before they could register to vote. Um, So this certificate of restoration, as it was called, is sort of an unnecessary administrative hurdle, which just requires people to track down... Uh, signatures on a document proving that they meet the eligibility criteria from records that are already in possession of the state and that process was sort of unnecessary on paper but in practice it was already nearly impossible for people to get those certificates of restoration because there's no application people kind of had to go on a wild goose chase to get the right officials to fill it out And those officials that are supposed to fill it out weren't even trained on how to do it. Hmm. So they'd often just say, no, I don't know what that is or make mistakes on the certificates. So it was already a really difficult process even before the change this summer.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the change this summer. Earlier this year, the state Supreme Court took action. Can you explain to us how much tougher the process is today?
0: Yeah, so to be clear, this change does not come from the Supreme Court. This is a new guidance issued by the Elections Division. Um, And they have used a Supreme Court case from earlier this summer as pretext for making the law more difficult. But that Supreme Court decision clearly did not change the law in the way that the elections division says it does. So I can break that down a little. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been a case working its way through the state courts. Um, from a man who is a Tennessee resident, but has a really old conviction from the 80s in uh, Virginia. Now, he, uh, on following guidance that was issued by the Elections Division, believed that if he got his citizenship rights restored in Virginia, he would be able to register to vote in Tennessee. So he actually sought clemency from the governor of Virginia for that really old conviction. He got it. Um, And then he proceeded to register to vote and come to find the elections division of the secretary of state's office had changed its uh, policy. And they said, actually, you still have to get the certificate of restoration, which means you have to prove you don't owe court costs on this decades old Virginia case. Hmm. He couldn't obtain records that showed that. Um, So he brought suit saying, hey, wait a second, the statute seemed to say that I can either do the in-state process or I can get my citizenship restored in that state. That case worked its way up to the state Supreme Court and the Tennessee Supreme Court ruled, no, actually he does have to go through Tennessee's process. Now, the Elections Division took one line out of that Supreme Court case and expanded its application to everyone with a felony conviction in Tennessee even though the court explicitly said we're only saying that this applies in this very particular situation of a person with an out-of-state conviction who moved to tennessee before getting their citizenship rights restored okay but now the elections division is saying that everyone in tennessee uh has to both get their rights of citizenship restored which includes also in addition to the right to vote the right to run for office and the right to serve on a jury as well as getting a certificate of restoration. And that's a reversal of 17 years of a different interpretation of the legislature's will on this topic.
1: Yeah, interpretations come down to language. Now, Rahim, the state uses a term, they use the term infamous to describe some of the crimes. Just tell us, what does that mean? Well, thank you very much for asking that question
2: because initially, and let me just say, back in 1989, 90, when I entered the system, infamous was a part of what happened after you were convicted of a crime. And there are certain crimes, felonies, that once you get that conviction, you're deemed infamous. And the most basic way for me to explain what that means is that you are no longer you no longer have a character in the eyes of society. Mm. In other words, um, there was this case on death row. During the uh, in the early 2000s where uh, this guy was on death row. His name was Rocky. It's public information. He had sued someone for defamation of character. And by the time the ruling came down, essentially what it says is that because you have been deemed infamous, you don't even have a character. So even if somebody lies on you, it doesn't matter because you're, you're no longer in good standing with society. That's the term. What... What happens to people when they're deemed infamous? Well, when you're convicted of certain felonies, you either get a fine, you either get a fee, you get uh, probate, probation, community corrections, or you end up going to prison. Mm. That's what happens when you're uh, deemed infamous. And sometimes when you're released from prison, in order to qualify for a certain type of license, Uh, you have to go before a board and they determine your moral turpitude. And this is kind of like a way to uh,
1: mitigate that infamous tag. So. I understand. I understand. Now, Dawn Harrington is the executive director of Free Hearts. She joins us now. Dawn, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Can you, you know, we've talked with Free Hearts before on the show, but for listeners who aren't really familiar with the organization, can you just tell us what you all do and how the organization got started?
3: Yes, uh, thank you for having me. So Free Hearts is a Tennessee statewide organization led by formerly incarcerated women that provides support, education, advocacy, and organizing families impacted by incarceration. Our ultimate goals are reuniting families and strengthening communities And, um, we got started, um, basically I had, I had been incarcerated and had the, um, because of all the injustice that I saw and everything that I saw, um, my sisters in there going through, um, as well as myself, I really wanted to do something around this. And, um, when one of our sisters, uh, had gotten out on a Friday and came back on a Monday, I really, like, wrote this whole journal entry about I want to start something called Free Hearts. And flash forward, uh, when I got out, I kind of went back to my life. Uh, I used to work in the music industry, and um, but the vision just never, it never died. And um, it was obvious it was time to get started. And so um, I got with other formerly incarcerated women, and we just started planning this organization and flash forward now, we have really built a, a base all across this state and we're working to change everything that's holding us back.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, now, Blair, can you tell us a little more about the Campaign Legal Center and the project that you direct, the Restore Your Vote project?
0: Sure, yeah, so the Campaign Legal Center is based in Washington, D.C., but works all across the country on strengthening American democracy. Um, One of our programs is focusing on voting rights and fighting voter suppression, and our program, Restore Your Vote, focuses specifically on both fighting felony disenfranchisement and fighting um, the misconception that most people with past felony convictions can't vote. Nationally, about 80% of people who have been convicted of felonies actually do have the right to vote, but there's a really persistent notion that once the right to vote has been lost, it's lost forever. Um, So we really work to help people get connected with resources in their community, like Free Hearts, that can help people understand what their rights are. And if they did lose the right to vote, help them go through the voting rights restoration process. Mm -hmm.
1: How did you and Dawn come to work together? Uh,
0: So Dawn and I met in 2018, I believe, and we uh, were looking to do some work in Tennessee because of how complicated the law was, and we met with Dawn, and she recommended um, that we hire an organizer, Jacola Lane, uh, to do this work in Nashville. Um, and we did, and Jacola did an incredible job reaching people across the Middle Tennessee region and helping them go through this rights restoration process, um, and. At that point, I know that Free Hearts had already been working on this for a while and really wanted to make voting rights restoration one of their main priorities. Um, So we just continued that partnership and continued to grow it. Mm.
1: Now, Raheem, when you were last on the show, you talked about your time being incarcerated. And, you know, it was during that time where you founded Unheard Voices Outreach. Tell us more about Unheard Voices and the process that you went through to create the group. Mm -hmm. So... Unheard
2: Voices was actually born out of a poem that I had written in 2005. I was sitting on my bunk bed looking out um, the window in a cell and I'd asked myself this question, um, who am I? And and I just went on to answer it. Society doesn't seem to know, representing the unheard voices. My name is Rogulo. And from there, after I had completed that poem, it's probably my best poem ever, I uh, I began to think deeper about what what it meant to be an unheard voice, because oftentimes I would sit in a pod in prison that's in the middle of the day room. I would see people go up for parole and then they would come back with their heads down because they didn't make parole. And then I would see people leave prison and come back. And um, I didn't understand it. And so over time, I just kept thinking on the idea, building on the idea. And finally, when I was released from prison in 2015, after 26 years, my sophomore year at American Baptist College, I was challenged to create a project that would reflect some education that a program that I was in, which is the Entrepreneurial Leadership Program at American Baptist College. And I just went and fin- I finished everything that I needed. I wrote up the vision and our vision for the uh, her Voices outreach is that for people leaving jail or prison is to experience a second chance society. Mm-hmm. And basically, some of our missional work is decarceration. We advocate for the release of people who are on parole, specifically old heads. One of our most important cases was Cy- Cyrus Wilson, who had gone to prison for a long time and maintained his innocence. We also um, push for plugging pipelines to prison through our P3 project, and that is to intercede for young people who are in the juvenile system. We got several juveniles, attorneys, so that they could have a better chance of not being bound over. And we also believe in changing sentencing. Uh, We have a 51-year life sentence Mm -hmm. here in Tennessee, and so we've been working for that. So Unheard Voices is saying and demonstrating that people who leave prison deserve an opportunity to live a changed life, a second chance life. And right now, felonism stands before us. And uh, felony disenfranchisement to us is just another form of felonism, which is the legal, social, economic, um, and political discrimination against people
1: who are being convicted of felonies. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the voting rights restoration in Tennessee and hear our guests' stories of attempting to restore their own rights. What do you want to hear? We want to hear your perspective. So join the conversation by telling, tweeting us. Pardon me. And this is Nashville. We'll be right back. Lalea Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking about the restoration of voting rights for formerly incarcerated people in our state. At this moment, nearly 500,000 people are denied the right to vote. If you've been convicted of a felony anywhere in the country, you'll have a very difficult time restoring your right to vote in Tennessee. The process is virtually impossible and costly. My guests today are people who are working to change that. I've been talking with Don Harrington of Free Hearts, Blair Bowie of the Campaign Legal Center and Raheem Buford with Unheard Voices Outreach. Again, thanks to you all for being here today. Now, you know, when I look at it, the media and most people often say that folks lose their voting rights. Is that the right way to frame it? Raheem, why is it inaccurate to call it losing voting
2: rights? So what it implies is somehow you had it and you were just like walking down the street one day and and it slipped out of your pocket Hmm. or that you, through some type of negligence, uh, lost your voting rights. And the reason that's the wrong framing is because it leaves out the fact that Voting rights in Tennessee were taken by legislate legislators. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in prison in the 1990s. Uh, brother Khalilah al Mumin had ran for senator, Tennessee senator in prison. And there was this campaign inside of the prison. And so what used to happen in Tennessee is that politicians would actually have to go to prison and seek votes from those who were in some of the main prisons like The Walls, Brushy Mountain, Tourney Center, and um, there's another uh, there's another uh, place. And so what I saw is that that was an inconvenience for these particular individuals. And so through the stroke of a pen and through a vote, Tennessee legislators decided to take voting rights from individuals who, so when they get convicted of crimes, you may plead guilty, You don't know that you lost your civil rights. You don't know that you won't be voting. Mm. And so it's improper to say that they were taken. And I think the last and most important part to me about it is, is that it implies that taking the voting right was a part of the sentence or a part of the conviction, and it had nothing to do with TCA statutes, Tennessee Code annotated. There was a crime. There was a punishment for a crime. You get a sentence. Fees and fines, you go to prison. It has... It says nothing about you losing your voting rights. That's something that is uh, styled or framed as um, collateral consequences. Mm -hmm. And and that minimizes the importance of what's central to a democracy, which is a vote. And being born in this country and having the federal identity of a citizen of the United States to allow a state to remove the voting right, in my opinion— and my belief is that that is wrong because it's like you don't even get to put up a fight for something that your um, your ancestors fought and bled and died for, the Voting Rights Act. And mm-hmm. so with Tennessee, ex- with ultra extreme voter suppression, it begs the question, what are you afraid of? Why are you, why are you denying 400,000 Tennesseans the right to vote? if your policies and your values are something that people like myself would agree with, give us the opportunity to exercise our vote because we pay taxes, we abide by the law, you count our bodies during the census, federal money is allocated to various parts of different states because our bodies exist there, whether they're in prison or not. Mm -hmm. And so taxation without representation was supposed to have been done uh, centuries ago, and here we are
1: today, a group of people who don't have a voice. Mm. Now Don, you've been through the process of restoring your own voting rights. Can you tell us about that journey?
3: Yes, so it was very difficult. I will say a little bit after I came home, I started trying to figure out the process to restore my voting rights and um basically we have well at that time and as Blair already mentioned they just made it even harder but at that time we already had um the most complex process of of any state and so I had to take this certificate of uh restoration which is basically an application form and uh take it to to get it filled out by the arresting authority or some obscure language. I didn't even really understand who that was. And actually my charge was in, my conviction was in New York state. And so um, the state of New York, had I been living there, I would have had my voting rights restored automatically Mm -hmm. upon being released. However, since I lived in the state of Tennessee, what I had to do was take that certificate of restoration form and take it to New York and try to get them to uh, fill it out. And um, it was very difficult. First of all, around that time, I was uh, working during day labor because I couldn't find a job. So I was getting paid daily um, to work on construction sites and help clean up. And so, um, and and we were starting to build free hearts as well, but I had to save up my money uh, from my day labor job to go to New York and try to get them to fill it out because when I was trying to call around, I wasn't getting anywhere. So I said, well, let me go out there. It should be really easy to like go out there and get it filled out. And, you know, I'm gonna save up because it's worth it. I really wanna be able to vote. Well, I, you know, flew out to New York. First of all, I was unsure who I even need to have it filled out by. And so I went to the um, police department because it said something about an arresting authority. And they didn't know anything about it. They said maybe try Rikers, which is where I was incarcerated. And so I went there and they didn't know anything about it, didn't want to fill it out. So I went to the court. So mind you, also with my day labor money, I'm spending a uh, subway uh, mm-hmm. fare to be able to go here, there and everywhere. I'm trying to figure out where um, I was going. And so I went to the court um, and the court told me to go to parole, even though I had never been on parole before. So I went to the parole office. They gave me like this long interview interview. Um, they asked me a whole lot of questions, very personal questions, and, um, then I would set a court date to come back. So again, I had to save up my money because I knew I had to come back in about a month to have this court date, but I was thinking it was going to be all worth it because at the end of the court date, they were going to fill out my paper. At least that's what I thought. And so I did the court date. I went back in front of the judge um, that I um, was convicted by, and I, you know, basically put on my evidence about, you know, what I was doing, you know, why I deserved this. And at the end of it, I was given like some sort of certificate of employability, something like that that uh, was for the state of New York. And they still wouldn't fill out my paper. So really, all of that money was wasted. I still didn't get anywhere. So at that point, I really just gave up. So. And so
1: how did how how did you get your voting rights restored after so all this difficulty? Ultimately,
3: once. Yeah. Ultimately, once we started working with Campaign Legal Center and we were uh, working with people in every single county to restore their right to vote back, I was not only the executive director, as they say on that commercial, like I wasn't not not only the director, but I was a client. And so um, we, they uh, campaign legal center was helping me to try to figure out how to get my voting rights back advocating for me. And um, as they did with a lot of the folks that we were running into um, issues with um, that we were trying to assist. And um, ultimately um, helped to get a national story, really talking about the issue of voting here, but um, was highlighting my story. And ultimately, I was able to get my voting rights back because my story was highlighted in a national story. And the reporter went and asked the local officials uh, for comment on why they wouldn't fill out my paperwork. And um, they, the reporter actually contacted me back and said, uh, "Great news! Like you're gonna have your certificate of restoration filled out." Yeah. And which was amazing. It was such an amazing thing. Um, I was able to vote in 2020 for the first time, but but it's sad because there's so many other people that are in my shoes that won't have a national story uh, to really highlight them to be able to get their voting rights back. Mm. And it really just shows that this is a systemic issue and um and also i don't blame the state of new york for not filling out the paper because again if i would have been living there they would have automatically given me my voting rights back if and you- so it's the state of new uh, the state of tennessee and this process that is intentionally suppressing our
1: vote. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about the fight to restore voting rights for people with felony convictions. My guests are Blair Bowie, Raheem Buford, and Don Harrington. You can tweet us your comments at this is Nashville. So you know, so Blair, so when you look at the rest of the country and how each state handles restoring voting rights, is there a state currently that has a model that's worth emulating?
0: Uh I mean, Tennessee is bottom of the barrel. Mm -hmm. Emulating any state would put it in a better position than it is in now. Right now, Tennessee is one of three states that has permanent felony disenfranchisement with no um, non-discretionary rights restoration mechanism. All rights restoration is in the hands of the governor or a judge based on the new guidance. Um, So the only other states that are like that are Virginia and Mississippi. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Mississippi just found that that system is actually cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's major. Any looking to pretty much any other state besides those two would be an improvement for Tennessee. You know, Uh,
1: to me, it comes as no surprise that black and brown people are most affected by this process. And I'm but I'm sure that poor white folks also have faced this challenge. So, you know, Dawn, how much does class and the ability to have quality legal representation have to do with this?
3: So, yeah, class has a whole lot to do with this, especially in thinking about the situation now, but even before. So we're one of only a handful of states that uh, require any type of financial obligations to be paid. We are the only state that requires uh, child support to be paid and connects child support to the franchise at all. And so it was already um, an issue to where class determined whether or not you were able to vote in this state. But now with the new rule that has happened this summer, it's even more of of a barrier because um, we know that it's discretionary um, by the courts or by the the parole board, but when it comes to the courts, um, you have to pay to uh, restore your citizenship rights. In Davidson County, it's $159.50. But in addition to that, um, there are no pro se options. Uh, The only judicial district that has a pro se option, meaning an option where you can Um, fill out this restoration of citizenship rights like request yourself is the 10th Judicial District, which includes Bradley County and Hamilton County has it on their website as well. But most of our judicial districts, including the one that Davidson is in, does not have a pro se option, which means that you essentially need to get an attorney to file this and go through this process for you. And you also have to pay $159.50 Filing fee. So again, it's a poll tax. It's something that's keeping people that are poor and working class away from even restoring their right to vote.
1: You know, to me, it's the, there's this dichotomy of the perception of the criminal justice system and how it actually works. The story is that people pay their debt to society and then they're released. But this limitation on their rights appears that the criminal justice system wants to continue punishing people after they serve their time. Raheem, what's your take? Well, first of all, I think earlier in the
2: program, Blair had spoken about 95 percent of people could possibly get their voting rights back if they could just figure out the convoluted process. Well, I fall into a category of the five percent where Tennessee has said that you will never vote for the rest of your life. And so there is this binary idea that people who have serious offenses and nonviolent offenses, if you have a serious offense, um, which they is determined a violent offense, you will never vote again mm. for certain categories. And so I think for me, and what I see is that if you did not um, commit treason, you weren't convicted of sedition, or if you didn't willingly give up your voting birthright, You should not lose your right if it is a right. And so even the terminology to me is in question because we never lose our um, due process rights in uh, the USA. And if the right to vote is central to my citizenship in the democracy, we have a real big problem because the way that voter suppression is winning— is that it's criminalizing people and saying as a result of that criminalization, your citizenship is also a part of the punishment that we will impose by taking it from you. Mm-hmm. So when I think about this process, I'm saying that we have to put more resources into educating Tennesseans about what's happening because Many of those who are poor whites, uh, Appalachian Mountains in different rural areas are voting against their own self-interest because they don't even see how important that their voices really are. And they just give their voices away without really being informed about
1: what's happening for them in uh, the Tennessee legislature. I want to talk about that right before we go to break, because, you know, politicians, they use crime and law and order as a campaign issue, and, and oftentimes they inflate. The crime to instill this sense of fear to get people to potentially vote against their own interests. You know, what can Blair, what, what can citizens do to enhance their own knowledge of the criminal justice system and to what effect do you hope a more informed citizenry will have?
0: Well, I'd certainly encourage Tennesseans to educate themselves about this new policy change. Um, I think one of the potential silver linings of this of this new sort of bad faith guidance is that it's really exposed the system for what it is um those who have been trying to restore their voting rights and and working within this system have known for a long time that it's impossible it's designed to fail it lacks the basic safeguards to make sure that people aren't being erroneously denied but now uh that's been laid bare for everyone to see. They've they've said the quiet part out loud. The system is not uh, discretionary, uh, or it is discretionary now, and um, and it's it's impossible. And so, Tennesseans should should have a look at these new rules and have a look at how many of their neighbors and folks in their communities are being disenfranchised um, i don't think we've mentioned yet that that 475 thousand tennesseans who are disenfranchised includes more than 20 percent of the black voting age population mm. so a huge number of people in the state are disenfranchised um, and this is a big opportunity for people to learn just how bad that is just how bad of an outlier tennessee is and get involved with efforts to fix this
1: Mm. Let's take one last break. When we come back, we'll learn about the efforts to change Tennessee's voting rights restoration process from lobbying lawmakers to taking the issue to federal court. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. and this is Nashville. This hour, we've been learning about Tennessee's arduous process to regain voting rights for the people who have been convicted of a felony. We gained an understanding of where we are now and how we got here from people who are working for change. Now, let's explore what that change could look like and the strategies being employed. My guests are Don Harrington with Free Hearts, Blair Bowie with the Campaign Legal Center, and Raheem Buford with Unheard Voices Outreach. All right. So... You know, there's a federal lawsuit against the state to change this process. Blair, you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the show. Can you tell us more about this lawsuit?
0: Yeah, so Free Hearts and uh, Campaign Legal Center and Baker Donaldson are representing the Tennessee NAACP, as well as a class of all disenfranchised Tennesseans who have attempted to restore their voting rights. to make this process work. Um, in, a, in essence, we have seen, and it should be obvious from the statistics, that the process for getting a certificate of restoration is basically impossible. Even though on paper, if you meet the eligibility criteria, which as Dawn said earlier, are the steepest in the country, um, you know, having to pay all restitution and court costs, um, having to be current on child support, et cetera, even if you, if you, on paper, if you meet those criteria, you have a right to this certificate of restoration, this piece of paper that restores your voting rights. And if you ask the correct official, you should be given it. Um, now that's not how it works at all in reality. In reality, there's no access to an impartial decision maker. People are getting all kinds of scattershot, scattershot um, outcomes, even if they're similarly situated And even though there's so many opportunities for error, uh, there's no way to appeal an incorrect decision. Um, So it really just creates a wild goose chase that's impossible for people to navigate. And in the end, only about 1% of people who have completed their sentences in Tennessee um, have ever been able to get their voting rights restored in the state.
1: Where's the process of this case right now?
0: So right now um, we are uh, in a phase of sort of investigating and trying to understand the new guidance. Um, The new guidance came out this summer. It says that in addition to getting certificates of restoration, everyone has to also go through the citizenship restoration process. Um, And so that's obviously, uh, you know, something that we need to look into for this, this lawsuit. And that's, that's what's happening now.
1: Now, you know, taking the, Kate, the court, the court, taking this case to court is one thing, but I'm interested in our own state government. Don, have you been lobbying lawmakers on the issue? And if so, who have you talked with?
3: Yeah. So definitely um, we have been lobbying legislators, uh, legislators for a few years and carrying, had introduced legislation around voting rights restoration. And so we've talked to um, a lot of them. Actually, this past year, we worked the House really hard. And um, on the last day of session, um, Leader Lambert uh, basically said, uh, not the last day of session, but the day when we pulled it to uh, roll it to the beginning of next year, um, he said that a lot of people are working on this, but quite frankly, he feels that our bill is the pathway forward. But in addition to that, um just wanted to name that the governor actually um can write an executive order to restore voting rights. And we have been working on an executive strategy as well, um, dual strategy, while we're also working on, you know, grassroots organizing, the direct service of restoring voting rights, coalition building. Uh, legislation and litigation. We're also working on this executive strategy of trying to get the governor to use his executive power to restore voting rights. And actually before um, even this new rule, where it makes it even more important, um, we had a, a meeting with him, his um, one of his lawyers, as well as one of the lawyers of Governor Kim Reynolds, um, who actually used her executive powers to restore voting rights back you're, you're in t- Iowa. You're,
1: you're, you're talking about Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa. Okay, keep going. I'm
3: sorry. Uh-huh, of Iowa. And so she actually did use her executive powers to restore voting rights and introduce clarity from the top. And so they um, actually, um, the, gov- the two governors are friends, and their chiefs of staff are friends. So we kind of looped them all on an email together and was like, hey, let's have a meeting about this. Um, And we did earlier this spring. And, you know, within that meeting, um, Governor uh, Reynolds Stafford was just really talking about why this was so important to them, was very passionate about the model, about the fact that a lot of people voted once they got their rights back and why they also thought it was very important to um, not require financial obligations to be paid, Um, in order for them to uh, get their voting rights back in their executive order. And so um, after that, um, Governor Lee's counsel that was there actually kind of before we even started talking, really recognized that the process that we have um, is flawed, even though we have a process, it's very unclear. It's very um, hard to navigate. um, It's, And so basically just really acknowledged a lot of our talking points about how the process did not work. Mm. And so um, at the end of that meeting, they really um, thanked us for bringing them a model, also mentioned the fact that they were in the process of planning their last administration and that this was timely conversation. They also said that in this um, last, I guess, term, they'll be able to do more things. And so now we're really just, since the new rule has made it very, it has really made it to where the governor needs to do something and act, we're also really just having community members to write Governor Lee or call his office and really tell them that they tell him that we want him to use your executive powers. To restore voting
1: rights. Okay. Um, now uh, let me ask you this, Raheem: If Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, which is a very red state, can do this, what's your optimism? Uh, optimism, pardon me, that Governor Lee will take a similar action. Well, I'll say this:
2: Governor Lee ran on a platform about criminal reform, criminal justice reform issues. And um, Governor Lee actually has a company that hires formerly incarcerated people. And Governor Lee has relationships with formerly incarcerated individuals. And so if he does not have higher aspirations politically, this is a way for him to stand on his promises and, and his word, because it's really simple in one regard is that There's a pathway for everyone to vote, including myself, who has been permanently barred. For example, um, if a person has been out of prison for uh, three to five years, you can say he or she are automatically uh, restored to their voting rights. And if we must continue with um, restitution, fees and fines, of which our sister Keita Haynes Mm -hmm. says we should not... Uh, let's create a payment plan where individuals who may have restitution can afford it it may be as little as five dollars a month but we need to understand that if you're gonna prevent people from voting for these reasons you have to have a process by which this can occur and if and when and when this occurs because it has to occur because the very nature the very foundation of this country breaking a- away from England, dealt with the issues of taxation without representation, not having a voice, not having one voice decided for everyone. And so just taking the voting rights is antithetical to what this nation is supposed to
1: believe in, particularly when it comes to second chances. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the quest to restore voting rights for people convicted of a felony in Tennessee. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, I understand that there was a strategy session earlier this week on the 24th and the 25th.
2: Raheem... You you were there? I was there. I was there. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was community. It was unity. It was organizers, activists, advocates, uh, just ordinary, regular people. It was diverse. And it felt like America to me. And it felt like we are in this fight until it's done. Because when we get this done, and it's going to happen because it's the right thing to do we're gonna be a better state, but it was a great experience and formerly incarcerated people. The first day, there's so much love among us. And the second day, just the whole community, I'm still amped up behind it all because to organize such a, a, a group of people, diverse group of people from all across the state, West, East, Middle Tennessee, people driving in, people spending the night, hotels, motels, People driving four or five hours across this state. I mean, because they believe in what we're doing.
1: I mean, that's amazing. So you have a strong sense of optimism about it. Can you give us updates of what happened?
2: Well, we do have a strategy. And according to uh, what I've learned in the art of war, uh, no uh, wise general general discusses strategy with the hmm. opposition. And I'm not saying that's you, but those yeah. who may be listening. But I'll defer that to uh, Don Harrington because she is the leader in this
1: space in a way that I am not. Dawn, can you give us a brief rundown of any updates, if you can share them with us?
3: (laughs) Yes. So um, I'll just give the update that um, within this time, we pretty much uh, solidified um, a strategy. We voted on a United uh, policy platform uh, we came up with our grassroots cadence and uh, priority uh, places. We mapped out the landscapes and we're getting ready for next steps. Hmm.
1: Okay. Now I'm, I'm interested in how this fight is impacting all of you personally. You're dedicating your time, your energy. And to me, it feels like your spirit to this movement. Blair. Blair. What, how are you maintaining and what keeps you working toward this every day?
0: Well, one thing I'll say is that I was also there at, at, the, at the gathering this week. And like Raheem said, it was just a beautiful thing to, to be with folks, uh, such a diverse group from all across the state, fighting for their own rights, fighting for their families' rights, fighting for their friends' rights, fighting for democracy. Um, and it's that kind of camaraderie and, and the bravery of people who are directly impacted and, and standing up to this really uh, brutal uh, system that that keeps me going and keeps me inspired.
1: Now, Raheem, what do you want to share with a listener at home who may be a person who has, who was convicted of a felony and wants their voting rights back or knows someone as a family member, as a loved one? What do, you, what do you want to share with them? I wanna say to them that of the
2: 470,000 people that they will be one of those people, he or she or they need to join our efforts. Uh, There's a www.bridges2freedom.org is a place where people can sign up and get on a mailing list to be informed about what's going on. But at the end of the day, when we decide that we want to fully participate in society, you don't really have a choice not to join this effort because people have already fought again. People have led, people have died. Civil rights, the, the, the Voting Rights Act, we can't just let a fearful, small minority group of individuals decide the fate of an entire state And if they are so confident that everyone agrees, put it on the ballot, put it on the ballot where we can vote on it statewide and everybody and determine whether or not the majority of Tennesseans agree with
1: um, felony disenfranchisement. Dawn, we got just about a minute left. I want to hear what you have to say to a listener who has their voting rights. This is a person who may not even know someone who's been convicted of a felony. What do you want them to walk away with from this conversation and to be thinking about for the future?
3: So I want them to be really thinking about um, this issue, whether it impacts you directly or not. It definitely impacts you when it comes to the things that you care about, whether it's you know, economic policy, healthcare, education, the environment, uh, criminal legal re- reform, foreign policy, um, social justice issues, infrastructure, and public services, the budget, and where your taxpayer dollars are go goes. It all depends on this democracy working and everybody being able to participate. And so when big groups of specifically black and brown people are not able to vote, that really significantly diminishes our voting power um, as a community, as communities across the state of Tennessee. And so um, this fight is your fight. Um, And so we look forward to locking arms with each other because join us in getting our uh, getting our voting rights back, and we can join you in building political power. Mm. Um, and so, I'll just leave with: um, we have this big dot lee forward slash right g o v l e e e l e e the number two vote big dot lee forward slash right gov lee to vote um, fill that out right governor lee. And just get involved with these efforts because this impacts you. Yeah. and we can, we can do this together. We're
1: going to have to leave it there. I want to thank my guests, Dawn Harrington, Executive Director of Free Hearts, Blair Bowie, Director of Restore Your Vote Project with the Campaign Legal Center, and Raheem Buford, Founder of Unheard Voices Re- Outreach. Thank you all so much thank you. for being here. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville. as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Char Datston. It was directed by Elizabeth Burton. Laura Boach is our Technical Director. Char also handled the live tweeting. You can listen back at this is Nashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The masterminds behind our theme music are orange and Amir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville and you can find us on Instagram. We're all over the place. Just find us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. Be good to each other.